0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm your host, Eric Skorzynski. And on today's episode, I'm going to be covering quite a few topics. I'm going to be breaking down a couple of new story updates and headlines from the world of the independent fundamental Baptist movement. I'm going to be giving some expanded thoughts on the Jill Duggar book, Counting the Cost. And I'm going to be sharing a really fascinating portion of my conversation with a Bob Jones University graduate that I encountered purely by chance on my other podcast, Film Schooled. Plus, I have a really interesting video clip from David Hiles that I'm going to be talking about really quickly. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited about today's episode. And I hope for anybody who's tuning in Recently, we brought in a lot of new subscribers uh, in the past month, just from a couple different videos, uh, specifically like Jessica Willis Fisher's video and through uh, the coverage of the Duggar story and even uh, some other news coverage that has happened over on social media. And so if you're listening for the first time, my name is Eric Skorzynski. I am, uh, through this podcast, attempting to shed light on what I believe to be systemic abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. But if you're not part of that world or if you're just someone who's interested in uh, the fundy kind of world and that's how you found – this podcast, there's something for everybody, whether you're seeking to uh, recover from abuse that's happened within that denomination, whether you're looking and you're within it and you're trying to identify if that's in your church, uh, whether you're someone that's just purely interested in some of these stories that touched uh, the mainstream, like the Willis story and the Duggar story, uh, whoever you are, this podcast has something for you. And even if you're from a different religious denomination or from a high control cultish group, there's going to be a lot of crossover with the guests that I have on, with the personal stories I share, and with the news articles that I cover there's truly something for everybody uh, throughout the course of the podcast. So thank you so much for tuning in. It means a lot to me to see people uh, listening to the show, especially on episodes where I'm interviewing survivors, and the fact that those stories are reaching uh, many different people is really, really exciting. So thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. As I said, I have a lot to cover today. I have a couple of new stories that I want to give updates on. This will probably be the heaviest aspect of today's show. So uh, be advised, I know it's a trigger warning at the top of the show. uh, These are a little bit heavy. I'm going to move through them. I'm going to give you the details as listed in the articles. uh, When a story is this fresh as some of these are, and most of these are within the last week. Uh, I'm not going to expound on a lot of additional commentary and thoughts, but I know some people who listen to this show, this is where you get your information on these cases. So I'm going to get through them as quickly as possible and uh, give you all the facts so you can be informed about what's going on in the world of the IFB. First, I recently covered the arrest of Nick Coral. Nick is, of course, the former vice principal and athletic director at Calvary Christian School and youth pastor at Mount Avenue Baptist Church in Banning, California. I've mentioned in previous episodes, this is the church that I was born and raised in. So this one definitely hits close to home. I'm not going to recap my story there. Uh, but this is definitely one that I've been following closely. He was arrested and terminated from his position of employment on September 12th, 2023, after allegedly sexually abusing a minor. And as of September 21st, Nick is still behind bars with his bail lowered from the initial 1000000 to 500000 His next court date is scheduled for September 29th, 2023. I'll keep you posted as there's more developments there. And next, a Mississippi youth pastor was arrested for molestation on September fourteenth, two 2023. According to a report on LeaderCall.com, Connor Coleman, age 22, has been charged with molestation, specifically touching a minor for lascivious purposes, and he was apprehended and booked into the Jones County Adult Detention Center. Coleman's affiliation is student director at Summerlin Baptist Church, as stated on the church's official website. However, the arrest was made due to an incident when Coleman was serving as an intern youth minister at Sandhill Baptist Church, located outside Ellisville. The incident involved a then-15-year-old girl when Coleman was 19 and occurred within the church premises just prior to a missions trip in Arlington, Texas, in 2021. The affidavit filed against Coleman in Jones County Justice Court details the claim that he touched the girl inappropriately in her crotch area and followed this act with a suggestive smile. The charges against Coleman stem from the fact that he was over 18 years of age and held a position of trust and authority at the time of the alleged incident. The investigation was initiated after a counselor met with Sergeant Priscilla Pitts of the Jones County Sheriff's Department, and it progressed with the interviews conducted with the young accuser and the completion of necessary court documentation. Subsequently, there was an arrest warrant, and Coleman turned himself into the Ellisville Jail. Coleman had his initial appearance in Jones County Justice Court on Friday, during which Judge Sonny Saul established his bond at $10,000 and mandated that he refrain from any contact with the accuser or her family through any means. The accuser reportedly asserted that there had been no contact since Coleman departed from the church approximately a year ago. In court, Coleman was represented by attorney John Piazza, and in the event of conviction, he could face a sentence of up to 15 years in prison. And finally, an IFB evangelist sits behind bars.
2: So many times whenever we come to church, we've put on a, the Baptist face. We've put on that, 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 that false pretense and our happiness and our joy is just another suit in our closet.
0: You just heard the voice of Benjamin Garlick, an evangelist who has filled many pulpits across Texas, Tennessee, Florida, Alabama, and Arkansas as a guest speaker, and he's received financial support from many ministries, including First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. Garlick, who currently resides in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, is facing a series of serious charges relating to the sexual assault of a child. He was apprehended based on a sealed indictment issued by a Rutherford County grand jury. Court records reveal that Garlic has been charged with multiple counts, including five charges of aggravated rape of a child, five charges of aggravated sexual battery of a minor under the age of 13, one charge of soliciting sexual exploitation of a minor under the age of 13, and one charge of continuous sexual abuse of a child. The 32-year-old suspect is in custody at the Rutherford County Adult Detention Center in Murfreesboro, with his bail set at $750,000, according to the sheriff's office. Garlic was arrested on September 12, 2023, the same day as his wife, Chantel Garlic. Court records indicate that Chantel Garlic faces one charge of facilitation of aggravated rape of a child and one charge of aggravated child abuse and endangerment of a child aged eight or younger. Chantel Garlick, who has posted a $75,000 bond, has filed an order of protection against Benjamin Garlic on August 14, 2023, in the Rutherford County Chancery Court. MPD Public Information Officer Larry Flowers informed WGNS News that the detective overseeing the investigation has confirmed that the Garlic case is still active and ongoing. The alleged crimes committed by Mr. Garlick date back to February 2021, but the investigation continues. Court documents specify that a hearing for both Chantel and Benjamin Garlick is scheduled for Tuesday, September 26, 2023, with a tentative trial date set for Benjamin Garlick on November twenty-seventh, two 2023. That concludes the headlines and updates for this week. I'll be back in just a moment with my expanded thoughts on Jill Duggar's memoir, Counting the Cost. Today's episode is made possible by Audible. Audible is the go to destination for audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. I know I use it all the time when I'm listening to books written by guests that come here on the show. And with a massive library of titles across various genres, Audible has something for everyone. And here's the best part. As a Preacher Boys listener, you can try Audible absolutely free for 30 days. That's right, 30 days of access to thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, original content, and more. Whether you're into true crime, self-help, science fiction, or history, Audible has the perfect title waiting for you. It's like having your own personal library that fits right in your pocket. So how do you get started? It's simple. Just click the link in my show notes or the description of this video and sign up for your free 30-day trial. Just click that link and you can start exploring and discovering fantastic content immediately. And don't forget, by using the link in the show notes or description of this episode, you're also supporting the Preacher Boys podcast. Happy listening. Let's get back to the show. Last week, I talked about Jill Duggar's book, Counting the Cost, which is a powerful memoir that Jill wrote about her time growing up with in the Duggar family, uh, her interactions with TLC, the Josh Duggar story. I mean, she really covers all of the stories that we've seen glimpses of. She's she's given us an unprecedented look at her personal experience within that world. And we get a lot of looks at IBLP and the religious side as well. And there's one piece I touched on in the review that I think kind of became an aside to the interview or, or to the review that I wanted to talk about a little bit more in depth Right now, it's something that just I keep thinking about. And that is the fact that the Duggar lifestyle was so unattainable. When you see a family that has 19 kids, your immediate instinct is to go, how do you pay for that? Like grocery trips for one kid or two kids is extremely expensive. How do you have 19 kids and they have houses and cars? And, you know, on top of that, you know, Jim Bob's buying jets and all that sort of thing. And it's clear throughout. The book, uh, Jill says that in IBLP, they were referred to as a model family or looked to increasingly as a model family, the more fame that the Duggars got. And the Duggars were indeed a model family for many people within uh, the IFB. Uh, for my family, they were not, but I know families like the Duggars, who, you know, were pursuing that lifestyle, became inspiration for other people within. You know that religious group and the Duggars. I know many people who were influenced by the Duggars and look to the Duggars as you know religious influences and and spiritual you know markers to follow. And when you really start diving into Jill's book and to even Ginger's book to an extent, um, you start seeing how untenable that lifestyle really would be for the average person. Most people do not have the money to live the kind of life the Duggars did. Yet they're being taught from organizations like IBLP and through the Duggar books and through uh, similar materials that are very uh, popular within evangelical and IFP world that you're to be fruitful and multiply and have a quiverful of children and that God will provide and uh, you know I know there's a variety of different religious beliefs of so people that listen to the show but I think we can all agree there is. Uh, Having faith, and then there's also uh, being practical and being uh, a good steward, if we want to use a biblical word. And uh, the truth is, while many parents and and young people that were raised watching the Duggars were told, squeeze out as many kids as you can, possibly, without dying. And even if you come close to dying, continue to squeeze out those kids. You are a baby factory. Um you know, and God will provide, it put a lot of financial strain on people. And it concerns me when I see kids growing up in families that can barely afford to take care of them. Is money everything? No. But when kids are struggling to have shoes or have decent education or eat nutritious meals or fill in the blank, due to the decision of parents that was kind of coerced and a decision that was kind of pressed upon them. Um, I think that's a really unfortunate thing. Now, for those of you that are going, what are you talking about? Now, uh, I mentioned in the last episode of the show this story that Jill recounts in her book where they go to Aldi. It's it stuck with me probably the most of anything in the book, ironically, um, maybe just because it really hit home for me as someone that grew up with parents in ministry and financially we never had much money, um, and yet I saw you know friends in similar positions who've you know, the parents just kept driving and doing things that were harming their family in the name of religion and ministry. And uh, anyway, in the book, Jill talks about them going to Aldi as a family and they're going with a documentary crew from Discovery Health. And she says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing that uh, we discovered that the crew was going to be paying for it. And she said, all of us kids were super excited. And finally we got to have uh, things besides like bean sandwiches and like Basically like uh, tater tot casserole, like these very cheap meals that they were used to eating because that's the way that the Duggar parents at that time could afford to feed their, I think, 17 kids at the time. And you see in the book this switch where it's like, as Jim Bob starts negotiating these documentaries, you've got things like their grocery bills being taken care of and uh, their home being paid for, the construction of the big house, as she calls it in the book. Um, All of these different things become... Uh, finance through essentially TLC. And Jim Bob essentially ends up making well over $10 million through the course of uh, the the Duggar show and that Duggar fame. And so one of the things I just think we should analyze and continue the discussion around, and I want to keep talking about this over, uh, over the next several episodes, is the idea that the picture-perfect lifestyle of the Duggars and this idea of God providing for the Duggars, uh, and this idea of anybody who pursues the quiverful lifestyle is going to have this is just not true. What Jill said is true. Reality and reality TV could not be more different. And reality had to be kept as far from that TV show as possible. And so, anyway, it's just something I want to mention. I, I don't have like six points in an outline about. It, it's just something that keeps bouncing around my head since reading the book. And uh, I wanted to keep kind of pushing that forward because I think it's something that whether it's the dress or the courtships or the finances or the education or fill in the blank with anything that looks so positive uh, from the Duggar lifestyle, like most of it's just untenable and um, and beyond the Duggars, you know, much of the teaching in the IFB when you have pastors and teachers and evangelists teaching something that to a layperson is impossible, but to them who are collecting love offerings and have the support of 260 people in a church, um, it's a very different lifestyle. And I don't think that's taken into account very often. So if you are watching uh, on YouTube, be sure to leave a comment. Let me know your thoughts on this particular section of the book. If you are not and you're listening to the podcast, uh, congratulations. You don't have to see my ugly mug, uh, but go over to social media and be sure to drop a comment. I'd love to continue this discussion because it has stuck with me so much. And it seems to be one of the things I just keep finding myself thinking about. And again, maybe it's because I grew up in a very poor ministry family, uh, but that book, part of the book really, really resonate with me. Um last thing before I jump into one of the coolest things that's ever happened, uh, I want to talk about one of the worst people in uh, that I've ever had to cover on the show and that I continue to have to cover on the show because he keeps saying incredibly stupid things. And of course I'm talking about the pile of excrement that's wrapped in human skin that is David Hiles. I truly Truly hate this man. Um, everything that comes out of David Hiles' mouth disgusts me. Um, everything about David Hiles disgusts me. The fact that he's walking around free every single day disgusts me because he deserves to be behind bars. And you know that's that's my opinion on the matter. Um, I truly, truly, truly dislike this man. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a long article of all of the things and scandals and abuses that, um, you know, Hiles has been involved in over the last, you know, several decades, uh, from his time at First Baptist Church of Hammond to his uh, numerous affairs and abuses in uh, Texas which he mentions Texas in this video uh, to his uh, his continued grifting and uh, putting predators back in positions of ministries through his his fallen in grace ministry to his recent affair in 2020 and lying about his wife passing away so he could manipulate this girl from another country into a relationship with him all while collecting checks of support from churches. He's just a terrible, terrible human being. And I don't want to give him much time on this episode. And frankly, again, you can revisit all of those things in the article I'm linking. So I'm not going to spend much time on it. It honestly feels like, you know, the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse movies. Let's do this one more time. Here's the 30 things that tell you that uh, he is a terrible, terrible human being that doesn't deserve to have any kind of platform or voice whatsoever. Um, So... Just very quickly, I want to kind of show you his mindset, though, because as much as I dislike talking about David Hiles and as much as I thought about skipping this segment completely, um, I think it's important for you to understand, again, the mindset and perspective of Hiles and even the people who try to give Hiles a little bit more grace than he deserves, which I think any grace is more than David Hiles deserves. Um, you know, when he does his restoration ministry, there's people who go, maybe Hiles did, repent and maybe Hiles does feel guilt and maybe Hiles did fill in the blank. But I want you to listen to this segment of a video that Hiles posted on his Facebook page. It is absolutely clear here that Hiles believes the most horrible version of what I've been saying that he believes over the last several years, and that many people who have called out Hiles over the years have said he believes, which is that you don't have to repent before being restored. And as someone who is running a restoration ministry for predator pastors, um, this should be concerning to people who are giving benefit of the doubt or supporting ministries like this. Listen to Hiles in his own words, talk about this topic. Hey guys, I'm in the middle of the edit right now, as you can tell, I'm just uh a room (laughs) editing this episode but i wanted to record a quick insert uh just to let you guys know that i did trim up some of the spaces between words in david hiles talking just to speed up the clip Uh, and then also i removed a couple places where he repeated himself and again this isn't the entire uh, clip that he recorded so if you want to see the full thing you're free to do that the link is in the show notes i'm not trying to hide or change what he said the, the essence of what he's saying is still present in the clip. I did not rearrange anything. Um, I just shortened it up. So I just want to mention that. Um, I'll go ahead and play the clip right now. Does restoration come after
2: repentance? Let me give you, first of all, a practical answer, and then let me give you the biblical answer. A number of years ago, when we were living in Texas, we were sitting at a red light on one of the busiest intersections in Dallas. We were next to a lady on our left side, and the light turned green. The lady pulled out rather quickly. For some reason, I hesitated. And suddenly, right before our eyes, a car just sped, running that red light, slamming into the lady's car, spinning her around, and then going off and hitting uh, trees. He was driving recklessly. He blatantly ran the red light. I was unfortunately rather angry i had no concern about that young man i wanted justice i wanted that young man to to be dealt with the police and paramedics and so forth they got there rather quickly i was surprised and when they arrived i immediately began to try and tell them how this young man had recklessly run through that red light they wouldn't have anything on it they ignored me what they did was they made sure that the young man was okay. They said, we'll worry about everything else later. Right now, we need to care about him and his welfare. They didn't walk up to that young man in the car and say, young man, if you repent from running that red light and driving recklessly, we'll deal with you. We'll take care of you. Otherwise, you're just gonna have to sit there in that car. First thing they did was take care of him. Because after taking care of him, they could deal with the failure. In his life. Galatians 6, 1 says, if a man be overtaken in a fault and repent, ye which are, oh, I'm sorry, did I add a line there? Um, it says this, if a man be overtaken in a fault and admit to his sin to every, oh, I'm sorry, uh, that doesn't say that either, does it? Uh, if a man be overtaken in a fault and ask forgiveness, oh, it doesn't say that either. What does it say? If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Now, that's an interesting biblical explanation to the question, what comes first, repentance or restoration? And the answer is, restoration comes first.
0: One, this is not applicable at all to the things that Hiles is doing. This is not applicable to rape and molestation and all the different abuses that Hiles has been both himself involved with or has helped uh, build relationships with people who have been involved in these things. Um, This is just a completely different situation. But let's go ahead and use his example. This kid rams his car into something, almost kills several people. Um, You know what they didn't do? Yes, they gave him medical attention. You know what they didn't do? They didn't say, hey why don't you drive this city bus now? Hey, why don't you drive this taxi now? Hey, why don't you drive for Uber now? Like we'd love to have you drive for us. That's the big difference here, right? Like, yes. Can someone who is an abuser get therapy? Sure. Can someone who's an abuser get, you know, put in kind of an isolation from the the victim and go through their own process and work with physicians and mental health people and all that? yes, they can do that. What they should not be given and what Hiles and Elk have given opportunity to, and has given to himself opportunity to do, is they should not be in positions where they can hurt again. They should not be given a platform. They should not be given a ministry leadership role. They should not be given all of these different things. And I think in these examples, one, abuse is never an accident um, ever, ever, ever. Um, But two, When someone does commit abuse or someone crashes the car, essentially, you don't give them the keys to another car. You don't give them a, um, you know, especially if they don't think they did anything wrong, if they think that they're all good to go. And likewise, if a pastor is abusing people in his church, you don't give them another pulpit. If a treasurer is stealing money, you don't give them another treasurer position. This is just absolute common sense. And again... It's amazing that not only does Hiles want to put people who say, I'm sorry, back in the pulpit, he wants to take people who don't even think they did anything wrong and work on, quote unquote, restoring them. And eventually, hopefully they'll get spiritual enough to actually decide to repent, which again, is just a disgusting POV and Hiles is just a gross dude and I'm always happy to point to additional evidence of that fact. Hiles is a terrible, terrible person. Uh, He should not be supported by anybody. And the fact that churches are still sending checks to this guy is, uh, I mean, All of those churches, in my opinion, have lost their right to be open. They should close the doors and just call it a day. But anyway, that's your uh, fun update about David Hiles. I'm not going to give him any more airtime on today's episode. I want to dive into something instead on a extremely positive note that I think is really, really cool. For those of you that don't know, I host a podcast called Film Schooled. It's a podcast and primarily YouTube channel uh, that I use to talk about movies. I am a huge movie nerd, movie fan. I love movies and love chatting about them. And I always joke that, like this is my heavy podcast. And that is like my fun, happy podcast that keeps me from jumping off a cliff. Um, it is a lot of fun. I enjoy doing it. And I've had a lot of highlights since doing the show and gotten to talk to some people involved with some amazing projects. I've gotten to talk to the producer of home alone, who, uh, ended up casting Julia Roberts in one of her first roles. I've gotten to interview uh, Joe Lynch, who directed movies like Mayhem and Point Blake for Netflix. I've gotten to talk to V. Neal, who's worked on all of Tim Burton's movies as a makeup artist and all the Pirates of the Caribbean films. I've gotten to talk with the VFX artist who's worked on shows like uh, Picard and uh, has worked on projects like Justice League with Zack Snyder, like all of these different uh, incredible people uh, who have made some amazing movies. And in addition to loving movies, I'm a huge horror fan. And so I was really excited about the upcoming horror film Saw X. And was even more excited when I landed interviews with Nick Matthews, the cinematographer for the 10th installment of the Saw franchise, and with Charlie Clouser, who is the composer who has created the Saw theme song and uh, done all of the music for all 10 of the Saw movies, in addition to other movies like The Stepfather and. Uh, You know, he's worked on shows like Numbers, like just two really cool dudes and uh, got to chat with them about this movie. Now, what the heck does this have to do with Preacher Boys? (laughs) Well, uh, this is a really cool story, but I sat down with Nick Matthews to do my interview and started talking to him about like childhood influences and inspirations. And he started telling me within the first few minutes, like, yeah, I actually grew up in a really fundamentalist Christian environment. And light bulb went on. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. And then he started talking about like South Carolina. And I was like, I wonder if Bob Jones. And he started talking about having a machine that blocked out bad words when he was watching movies. And I thought, that's interesting. I had a TV guardian as well. And anyway, come to find out, uh, oh, and then we related too. He started talking about filmmaking and, you know, getting inspired and running around with the camera. That's stuff that I used to do. And, um, it is, it was really cool. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, he grew up around Bob Jones and went to college there and started working there and come to find out his parents were on staff at Bob Jones university. Uh, he grew up around that world. He ended up, uh, working there for a while, worked at answers and general or at the creation museum with Ken Ham, uh, for several years and worked on <laughs> several of the videos and DVDs that they put out. Um, and worked alongside ministries for a long time, very similar path in a lot of ways to what I was doing, like growing up, loving movies, super sheltered environment, wanting to work in media, um, going and pursuing that. I went the path of working and shooting promotional videos from many different churches. Uh, he worked with specific ministries for a long period of time. It was just really cool, and we had a lot to connect on. So, we spent 30 minutes or so of the episode really diving into kind of his story and his path through that. Um, and it was just really, really interesting. So, I wanted to share that with you. Um, I know not everybody who listens to this episode is going to be interested in the Saw movies. Um, I know that it is a, uh, It's a particularly heavy set of films and the horror genre is not for everybody. And that's completely fine. But I wanted to share this like first 20, 30 minutes of the episode uh, just to let you guys kind of hear us figure out, uh, you know, how similar our backgrounds really are because it's kind of cool. And for those of you that do love these types of movies, uh, definitely encourage you to check the link in the show notes of this episode, or um, just go to the film school, YouTube channel or podcast and listen to my full conversation with Nick, because uh, the interview about saw specifically is really fascinating and the way that he went about lighting and shooting that. Um, and it gives you some teasers of what to expect in the new movie while also staying spoiler free. But anyway, I want to end the episode with just this snippet of our conversation. And again, be sure to listen to his full episode over on the Film School podcast. One last nugget before I share this, because this is the part I forget to share, but it's really funny. At the end of the episode, we hit the stop button on the recording, and I told Nick, I was like, man, small world, this is super weird. He's like, have you heard of a podcast called Preacher Boys? And I had like the Obi Wan Kenobi moment of like, of course I know him, he's me. And he hadn't put two and two together because he only listened. He didn't put my face and voice together with that show. And so it was super weird. I thought he was pulling my leg at first. Um, But he's like, yeah, I've been listening to a lot of the Preacher Boys podcast. And this is so weird. And we ended up, you know, kind of getting connected in a, in a much deeper way than expected when I initially sat down to do the interview. So anyway, without further ado, here's a snippet of my conversation with Nick Matthews. I really hope you enjoy it. And thank you so much again for listening to today's episode. Let's go ahead and give you a sneak peek of my conversation with Nick. I always like to say filmmakers make films, films make filmmakers. What are the films that made Nick Matthews?
1: I grew up in like a very conservative, fundamentalist Christian kind of home in South Carolina, Kentucky. And um, you know, I wasn't allowed to go to the movie theaters uh, and I but media and literature and storytelling was still very much valued in my home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was this weird dichotomy of, you know, you can't go to the theaters and and for a while, movies were censored pretty heavily. Um, We even had this device that would like censor when a bad word was said. The TV Guardian? Yes, we had a TV (laughs) Guardian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, but as I got older, I I loved literature. And my dad actually has a master's in English (laughs) literature. So we had books everywhere. So I was reading Kafka and Hemingway as early as like sixth and seventh grade. And I was fascinated by this sort of like, Um, these sort of stories, this sort of like dark and real, but also like, uh, you know, a little magical realism and uh, this sort of like grotesqueness of some of those, those stories. And I got interested in Southern Gothic and some of that sort of material. And then I started, we always watch Moot. My dad showed me it like Lawrence of Arabia when I was in third Mm. grade. And I remember being really struck by that. And he showed all of us like 2001 space odyssey when we were kids. And he's like, you have to see this movie. And so there was a real love of cinema in my family. And yeah, my dad actually showed us for like Halloween's. I remember as like a tiny kid, he took all me and my siblings and and was like, all right guys, we're going to watch the original Frankenstein, the original Dracula. Mm. And then we're going to finish it off with Abbott and Costello's like, Frankenstein and Dracula. By the time we got to Abbott and Costello, we were all so freaked out. Yeah. Like the the comedic elements of that didn't end up working. And I think I, I think I slept in a big puddle with all my uh, four other siblings that night. Um, So I had a love of cinema, but when I what actually got me interested in film in, in my life was I'd had a big move um, away from all my friends and everything I'd ever really known when I was Mm. in about seventh or eighth grade and I started watching, you know, Lord of the Rings came out around that time, mm-hmm. Gladiator some of that, that dates, you know, exactly where I am in my life. Um, but I had a real connection with Lord of the Rings and the yeah. literature. Of it. And then when I started seeing the movie and all the making ofs, I, that really caught my interest and mm-hmm. attention. And at the same time, I'd have like a friend come over to my house at some point and be like, oh, your parents have a video camera. Like, do you want to just make like a movie with it? And so we went out and we, like my brother had a bow and arrow and we like went and we shot this scene of someone shooting an arrow and then like, ah, you know, we like whip pan in and we're doing like all in camera editing. It's like mini DVD tapes and we're backing them up and just like go one frame earlier and then like get this sort of thing. So that I was doing that. And then the movie that actually made me say, I want to make movies weirdly enough was the elephant man, Mm. uh, David Lynch's film. It's black and white. It's, really literary it's very like you know there's a lot of metaphor in it there's a lot of um it's a really beautiful story about humanity and what makes us human Mm. and you know like it i think this sort of film about like someone that's perceived by society as a monster but is this really intelligent and kind soul like that something about that movie really captivated me and i would say that you know, all through high school at that point, like this was DVD, Netflix, right? This is, you yeah. have a subscription, you're getting stuff mailed in. From that point on, I really did start watching everything from Battleship Potemkin to, you know, um Solaris to uh The Shining to, you know, and I, I really invested in wanting to watch movies more and more and more. And because Despite being in like a really conservative religious home, I kept pushing the boundaries and, you know, every time I was dad was like that's the most violent thing you'll ever watch yeah. in this house. I was like, "Well, what if we watch this?" Right. Uh so like I did keep like pushing that and weirdly in that culture there's like a very there's a big interest in, you know, I mean there's it's a very violent uh, you know, it's a story of like sacrifice, it's a story yeah. of blood, it's a story, you know, there's a lot of songs about that. And there's also a lot of songs about good and evil and there's a lot, you know, in that sort of framework. And so I think there was an acceptance of the macabre and of like, you yeah. know, darkness and sort of graphic violence like that. But much less so surrounding sexuality or anything like right. that. Yeah. So for me, yeah, the like I, I ended up c- connecting a lot with like Seven. I connected a lot with um, Seventh Seal. I don't mm-hmm. know if sevens, everything was seven. And, <laughs> I don't know. Very superstitious. Uh, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bergman was a big influence in, in yeah. high school. Um, you know, I love the Godfather. I love like Coppola. Like I do think that like, you know, I remember the first time I watched that movie and the way it made me feel and watching the Godfather part two and like just being taken through this like massive kind of epic story about family and you know it, it it in sort of like what it does to michael corleone and like that sort of yeah the way the movie starts and the way the movie closes and like a lot of that just really captivated me but i just i really had no grander knowledge of cinema because the world i grew in up in just didn't respect it and it wasn't right. something that they were pursuing so for me it all felt like new discovery and i felt that way ever since and yeah um, I, I'll tell you the, you know, when I saw I saw Saw, the very first one, I was we would go to Blockbuster and we would get, you know, we would still get movies there. And I was so excited to see the movie. I remember people talking about it. Even I worked at a religious organization in high school and okay. I, I like volunteered and did like um I was uh, post PA. So I was doing like, you know, data like tape logging and right organization and it was like my first job quote-unquote in the industry and um i remember people at work talking about it because they were all media savvy and they were these were even in the religious world like these were people who were very interested in what was coming out what was being made and so i was so excited about it i wanted to see it and i kept Pressuring my parents to let like to be able to watch it, um, and eventually they caved and they're like, "Just don't talk to anyone at your church about this." <laughs> right. Like, hey, well. So my younger brother and I watched it, and as soon as we finished, we dashed upstairs and we're like, "That movie was crazy!" And we started talking about it, and then we turned around and there was a fa- like two families from our church just like standing there, and we're like, "Oh, so well, funny." That is what is. We,
0: yeah, we have so many touch points that I did not know before starting this interview. So I grew up in fundamental Baptist, super conservative circles. Um, and, uh, actually host another podcast all about that world. Um, but grew up the same way. My mom was a literature teacher. So we were able to read and watch things that a lot of my friends weren't allowed to, um, you know, and same thing, push the boundaries. I want to watch this. Like, um, I, you know, my mom was very open, but it was like, it was like classic movies. Right. So like, we had a strict rule, like no R-rated movies. That was like the yeah. the unbreakable rule. And then when I was probably 12 or so, we watched Psycho and yeah. the movie ended and we were like, wow, they didn't show anything. My mom was so fascinated with like, you feel like you saw something you didn't, but like, why can't they be, you know, why can't they be movies like that now? They have to show everything. And we're watching and the credits roll. And at the very end of the credits, it says, This film has been rated R by the Motion Picture <laughs> Association of America. And we all looked around at each other like, That was my first R rated movie. <laughs> it's like such, a, oh my God, such yes. a shock for, but that, but that was kind of when there was this pivot of like, Okay, well, not everything R is bad. And I started to push into George Romero's movie, started to push into, you know, by the end of high school, it was like, I'm watching all these Evil Dead, you know, Sam Raimi movies, and um, yeah. yeah, and it's funny um, because when I turned, which tells you my age, when I turned um, eighteen, the new Evil Dead <laughs> was coming out. Evil Dead, the Fede Alvarez remake. Yeah, and which I worked my...
1: with Shiloh. For an oh really? Oh cool. So we really have like multiple Evil Dead connections. So I also worked with Ted.
0: You'll appreciate this and that was my first theatrical experience. So like I had never gone to the theater. It came out right around my birthday and I told my dad I said I really want to see it. And He's like you're turning 18. It's your choice. And so I made yeah. that choice. <laughs> I went and it was like one of the coolest to this day it was one of the coolest theater experiences ever cuz that movie just that's, blows the roof off. So
1: That's amazing. That's really interesting to hear cuz yeah, like I didn't see The Prestige with my first
0: hmm. uh
1: movie in a theater and I had this was in college, you know, and I, I, and I was like, I, you'll probably know the names I worked at the creation museum. And okay. I, yeah. yeah. I also, um, I was going to yeah, ask about
0: Bob Jones. Yeah. So yeah, I, up I up figured South Carolina.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So in my parents worked at the university and wow. my dad worked for the press. And then I was actually homeschooled in high school. Um, and just like, you know, which, but at the same time, like, uh, four of my siblings or I have four siblings. Three of them are queer of some variety. Mm. Like, you know, um, and so I think we've all kind of like found our own
0: path in a way, Yeah,
1: but it's, but yeah, like those have been formative. That's crazy that we have like, such well,
0: a- I mean the TV guardian, like yeah. there's so much inside baseball, which like, you know, people listen to this for SAR, are like, I don't care about any of this, but it's, but it, it is such a funny, it's such a funny thing. Like, all of those experiences. And it is it, it in a way, sometimes it's, I still will be like, oh, I haven't seen this because we weren't allowed to watch like, you know, this movie for a long time. But on the other side too, it's been so interesting discovering movies to this day that are like huge pop culture influences that yeah. I'm slowly catching up to. And the perfect segue into saw, um, You know, we watched a lot of things we weren't supposed to. We snuck a lot of movies, we pushed boundaries and stuff. And the way that I was introduced to Saw was we were going, I played on our school, our private school basketball team, which is very prestigious. And we were in the van going from around Palm Springs to Chico, California. So Southern California, Northern California. It's like several hour drive. And one of my friends had all of the Saw movies downloaded to, I think, his PlayStation Portable or is is uh, I whatever iPod, yeah. and I'd never heard of it. We're sitting down and we just watched through the whole series, like in the back of the van, <laughs> like just oh my god! In the the first movie, <laughs> when the Hello Zeps theme starts playing and it starts unraveling what actually happened, we're all just in there like oh my god. And then just kept going through the the entire series, and so um, yeah, man, it, uh, that's that's really interesting. I could t- I could talk forever about um, like like that that weird bubble because it is um, you know I've, I've chatted with so many people from the Bob Jones world. I was near like West Coast, and you know it's yeah. it's funny talking to people who like actually kind of found their way through media, you know, coming out of that world. And it is funny because, like you said the Bible's a gory, brutal book. You're singing songs yeah. about being washed in blood, you know? And then you're like, yeah. Can I please watch saw? I would love to do yeah. that. It's, it's connected <laughs> in some way.
1: Yeah. Read judges like, uh, you know, read like they're very like, and also like uh, if you take uh, just like a more literary, like perspective of the Bible, it's mm. and like, look at it as a historical document rather than like, you know, a guidebook to life or something. It's like, there are these like very primal stories told yeah. throughout and they're often very, you know, it's a very jealous God. It's a very, you know, it's a very like, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of retribution. Um, You know, it's, yeah, it fascinates me because I, I like, even the first times I was operating a camera, you know, the mm-hmm. first short film I ever made was for like a church, event you know and i that was the first time i had something i shot exhibited in front of an audience
0: same here yeah you know
1: and then i think um and i went to a religious school like for my undergraduate and so a lot of like i've been operating since i was in high school and you know in college it's like operating those like imag like live event things but it's like you actually get really fucking good yeah operating if you have three thousand people watching you like sit there and then you're like okay they're gonna do this fucking cue on the band so we got to do this dutch zoom in yeah. like you know and it's like actually those were there was like a pretty good training ground for yeah. um yeah like it was actually there was a lot there and like there's a lot that i i still am like kind of uncovering about what it taught me or what i
0: yeah. you know what i mean?
1: Is influenced.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that was my first time ever showing anybody. anything. it was the same thing. I mean, smaller environment than a, than a Bob Jones, but you know, I was in like a 250 person church, you know, and in junior high, I'm running around youth activities with a camera shooting recap videos. I'm staying up all night, drinking Mountain Dew, editing and showing Sunday morning. And like, it, it was a very, unique environment. And it's one of the things that I am appreciative of is like I had a captive, literally a captive audience to show whatever I wanted to show. Um and yeah, all of that experience, you know, I have a lot of unpleasant memories in that world, but it is interesting like going back and be like, man, all of my all of my first projects were that, you know, all of my life was kind of in that circle. So um yeah, that's super, super interesting. Um I'm curious stepping into your career i mean yeah. coming out of bob jones i have to imagine you were like i'm going to remake Sheffy, and it's going to be the most amazing <laughs> uh most amazing picture ever made um uh, no what was your what was your original trajectory was it <laughs> yeah for two people will appreciate that
1: um we'd kind of like to know who we're obliged to
0: i'm robert Sheffy. What was your kind of goal? Like, were you looking to go into broadcasting? Was it always I want to be a cinematographer? Was it I'm going to be a director? Like, what was the the path you wanted to go out on?
1: Yeah, yeah. So for me, originally, like when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be an author. And I, mm. you know, I was writing stories, I was writing novels. Um, I don't think I ever finished a novel, but I wrote a lot of short stories. And then um, as I sort of started to fall in love with cinema and literary and and filmmaking, I I remember I met with like, you know the like. By the time I was in high school, we had moved to Kentucky, and I was working for Answers and Genesis. My dad was working at Answers and Genesis as the Creation Museum was being built and made. Wow! And so I actually had a firsthand seat to watch something go from nothing into like you know a create. Once again, it's it's a specific thing made for a specific subset of people. Right. But because my dad was one of the writers on a lot of the material in the in the Creation Museum. I was actually at a backhand, you know, this front hand seat to like that place being built and made. That also was part of what inspired me and intrigued me. And so I remember my older my older brother, he played flute and he ended up going to USC and he had hmm. a scholarship to go to USC and he'd won like a number of like national flute competitions and kind of went off. And so like arts were very much something that my parents supported and supported us following at the time I was really religious and I wanted to go to a Christian school. So I ended up going to this place called Cedarville university Hmm. and I, they didn't really have much of a program. I thought they had more of one than they did to be honest. Um, But I knew at that point that I, like, I had read like books on film directing. I had read some of the like textbooks that were available, but I didn't really have like a huge sense of what it was. And a lot of the way things get made at this like smaller university level, it's like you making your own thing, editing it, shooting it. There's no real sense of like what a crew does or the size of a crew or what it takes. So it, it was very like self-directed, I would Mm -hmm. say in a lot of ways. And then at the end of that process, I went to this um, place in California called the Los Angeles film study center for a semester and I met, you know, there were maybe 50 students and we all got to, we were all tasked with writing a short and they chose four of the shorts to create into like final projects. And then everybody that wanted to direct could put their reel together right. and show the professors. And so I put my reel together and I ended up writing one of the shorts that was made and then directing one. Of mm. They wouldn't let you direct around because they're like, no, we want gotcha. to learn to think in a different sort of capacity. Hmm. And it was during that semester I was working as a PA on um, this movie called Pete Smalls' is Dead that had Lena Headey, and hmm. Mark Boone Jr. and Peter Dinklage, and you know this was before Game of Thrones, yeah. Um, and so it was a really interesting and exciting project for me. And also we did a lot of set dressing with pornography. The there was you know a lot of scandalous things happening because a lot of people were NYU grad students and they were living a very free lifestyle. Right. I remember the PAs and I like stumbled across like we were we were driving everyone to location and stuff and someone left a camera in the back of one of our cars and he was like do you know who's this is i'm like no and it's like just turn it on and see whose photos it's up and then you can figure out who to give it to he turned it on and then it's just a bunch of people having sex (laughs) like it was a very like it's one of these people yeah (laughs) yeah like i don't know and so um at that time i would i had never not shot something that i had directed Hmm. Um, except I think maybe one short. And I remember being sort of upset that I wasn't going to be able to shoot my project. And that was kind of the first time I was awakened to like, oh, there's a director of photography. There's a cinematographer. It's a team. Yeah. Yeah, and I had people telling me about Roger Deakins and Emmanuel Lubezki. And so that actually started like i i knew directors and names of directors but i didn't and i thought i wanted to direct at first mm-hmm. i mean i think most people get in because they wanted to, to direct because they're like that's all they really know about who makes movies and yeah. you know and maybe you know the writer or the actors but i think as you know the internet at that time like dslrs were just this we were still shooting on like two third inch chip cameras <laughs> yeah. and like you know, I think I used az one u to shoot those short films. And then I got out and I started using the XL1 and then the HVX200. And then, and then the 5D hit the world and kind of changed, changed everything. yeah. Yeah. So I, for me, it was like, I knew by the end of that semester, I knew I wanted to be a cinematographer and I, but this was in 2009 and the economy crashed right as I was graduating. And I, moved back to Cincinnati, uh, I got married and started working at the creation museum because I had worked there in high school yeah. and in the, it, I was there for four years. And while I was there in the process of sort of the dogma of the place, the sort of rhetoric of the place, um, the experience, you know, I'd already had a lot of challenging experiences in Christianity and, right. and in especially Christian fundamentalism. And I had sort of walked, into a more progressive space and into more emergent church you know church sort of space and thinking but that process really in a lot of ways like i walked away from faith in that like time period because Mm. of working, working there and being you know at that place and so um while i was there i was also starting to make you know i was doing stuff for the museum shooting and editing and Also, a lot of AV, a lot of sound, like setting up sound and projection. I just needed a job. Like, I didn't, you know, and at the time I was like, well, I don't know how I end up, if I'll ever have a chance to do this or ever end up being do this, right? And so I, and I was pretty depressed about it too, because I I had been like, I went to school to go make movies and now I'm like, you know, doing this and it's not really paying me that well and I'm not making the kinds of movies. Because for me, even when I was, very much in a religious space. I wanted to make movies that were about the human experience, movies that explored like our, you know, our mortality movies that explored what it is to be human, what it is to brood and to think and to wonder and to ponder Mm -hmm. the possibility of the world movies that make you question your point of view and your perspective. It's why I've always loved foreign cinema. It's Mm -hmm. it asks you to question your own sense of what is community? What is, you know, what is good? What is what is the good life? What does it mean to feel what is family? You know what I mean? And it's like all these bigger questions about life that stories, mm-hmm. you know, the stories we tell sort of ask and, and ponder about, right? And so I always wanted to make movies like Seven and Shoshank Redemption and even in that time frame, because I was like, these are movies about, you know, I was making mer- like my first right. short film at you know, Christian College was somebody walking into a, a room and it was a full of dead bodies and it's like there's blood everywhere and i mean i remember i made my actor i didn't understand continuity fully i didn't understand that we could redress the scene so it's like you're dead you're staying here until we're done shooting the <laughs> for, <movie."> forever yeah. <laughs> like you can't get up because then the continuity will be fucked you know it's like you'll get yeah. blood everywhere. it's like of course you have to let this person they can't lay on the ground for 17 hours straight but like, I just, you know, I was like, you make a movie and you do it in a day. And like, yeah um and I was, so I ended up, what I would do is I would shoot every time we had a project for the creation museum, I would shoot uh that, that project and we got to do some cool stuff. We got to do some pretty big set builds and stuff that, you know, it's like, no, they it was had a bit time. of budget.
0: Yeah. Had,
1: yeah. And then in the process we would rent like you know, a red Epic and we would rent like a three ton truck and we would rent like a Fisher dolly and to do the job for them. And then one of the guys I worked with there, he and I would go and we would make, you know, we would make a short or we would make a a commercial or we would try to make a music video. So we really worked a lot together and both of us wanted to make films. We were watching stuff like Snowtown Murders. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the first time I watched Evil Dead was a day we got snowed in at the creation museum you That's know what so i mean funny. And it's like yeah. yeah so i and then i hit a point where i was like if i don't i was about 24 or 25 this was 10 years ago
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and i hit a point where i was like if i don't try to go to la or new york and make movies really what happened was i had that moment of like i don't want to do this the rest of my life and i'm right. nervous about staying here and i I'm ready to move on and I'm ready to do something else. Yeah. And so I talked to a number of cinematographers. I talked to somebody who's local in Cincinnati, this guy named Jeff Barkledge, who was really kind and showed me like his gear. And, you know, he had worked on some stuff, but um, nothing huge, but he'd made a living as a cinematographer and he'd worked, you know, he worked on Shawshank Redemption as a grip on, and saw Roger Deacons and had done, yeah. you know, so there was story there. Right. And he was really kind and supportive. And then I had made some friends when I was in LA because I, worked on some USC grad student shorts as you know, and met some people through that. And so my friend uh now really good friend, Sean Connody, who's a commercial DP. I had talked to him and I'm like, where do I go? And I reached out to a few other people in New York and LA. And they were basically all like, look, if you want to make movies, you got to be in New York or LA because mm-hmm. people get hired from there and flown to other places. They don't yeah. hire the local DPs. It's just what it is. And so, you know, I looked at production companies all throughout Cincinnati, like, from cleveland down to nashville and i just didn't see anyone doing the kinds of movies and sure. things i wanted to do so i packed up you know i quit my job talked to my wife first we talked about it for a while packed up and um we moved to los angeles and then i had a reel at the time and that was about it and i didn't tell i didn't tell anybody for probably five years that i'd worked at the creation museum because i was so nervous people would be like you're that religious guy
0: your reels just can't ham um, like talking in front of you know for yeah, <laughs> it's like exactly. not the best reel you know
1: yeah exactly which like look i've done you know i edited i was one of the editors on like their like ken's like main series like the foundations project or whatever it's called yeah you know like i just yeah i have a, in, a more intimate knowledge of that world than like i think will ever be useful but, right right Unless I end up trying to tell a story about it at some point, but I'm not there yet.
0: All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to that snippet of my conversation with Nick Matthews. Be sure to head over to the film school podcast to hear the full conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And uh, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the preacher boys podcast. I really appreciate your support of the show and I hope you're enjoying these kind of compilation episodes covering a variety of topics. If you have any feedback, be sure to leave a comment in the comments. comments of the YouTube video or on social media. I'd love to hear from you and continue to make the show better and better for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next Sunday on the next episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. Talk to you soon.
1: Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, Please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc.